Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can for $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can also support the podcast through a donation on my website. Just click donate at CanadaEHX.com. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts you can enjoy. I have From John to Justin, where I look at every single Prime Minister, from Johnny McDonald all the way up to Justin Trudeau, and Pucks and Cups, where I look at the history of hockey from the 1800s to about the 1960s. All are on all podcast platforms. When we look up into the sky, we don't often think about the things falling down from space onto us, except when we see a meteor streak through the sky. Canada has had its fair share of meteor strikes dating back millions of years, thanks to the immense size of our country. But in 1978, something else from space fell, a radioactive satellite named Cosmos 954. On September 18, 1977, the Cosmos 954 satellite was launched as a part of a series of reconnaissance satellites that observe ocean traffic, including nuclear submarines. The satellite was powered by 50 kilograms of uranium-235. The satellite orbited the Earth between 259 and 277 kilometers above the Earth, every 89.5 minutes. Under the right conditions, the satellite could track destroyers and aircraft carriers in real time. The satellites under the reconnaissance program were often designed to last a few months before they became non-functional. As a result, the Soviet Union only put these satellites in orbit if they were expecting a large increase in NATO and U.S. naval activity. The intention was for the satellite to stay in orbit for the long term, but in December of that year, the flight path of the satellite changed and became increasingly erratic. By mid-December, the North American Aerospace Defense Command began to notice that the satellite was making odd movements and changing its orbit altitude as much as 50 miles. This was because the Soviet operators were trying to control the spacecraft as it began to decay in its orbit. Amazingly, for the Cold War, the Soviets actually contacted the United States about the satellite and held secret meetings with them. The Soviets also stated that the system should eject its reactor core into a safe disposable orbit, but that measure failed. Of course, no news was released about the possible re-entry to the public as Canada and the United States did not know where it was going to land. It was known eight days before it came down that the satellite would land somewhere in North America. Some officials were worried that due to the uranium on board, this would be a worse nuclear contamination than was seen in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. On January 18th, with the realization that the satellite would fall months earlier than expected, a secret message was relayed to NATO members, as well as Australia, Japan and New Zealand, advising them of the situation. On January 20th, the Canadian Department of Defence warned all its regional commanders and the nuclear accident support teams across Canada of a possible re-entry over the country. On January 22nd, helicopters, radioactivity detectors, trucks, special equipment and more were mobilized at three military bases located in Washington DC, California and Nevada, ready to go wherever the spacecraft landed. In the morning of January 24, 1978, at 6.53 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Cosmos re-entered the atmosphere north of the Queen Charlotte Islands and began tracking across western Canada. 
Within 70 seconds, it had disintegrated across the sky, spreading its debris across the northern landscape. As it decayed in the atmosphere, the spacecraft wreckage spread across 600 kilometers, hitting the Northwest Territories, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. About 22 minutes after the satellite crashed, President Jimmy Carter contacted Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau to tell him that the satellite had crashed in the far north. On Tuesday, the leader of the opposition rose to his feet right at the start of question period. Joe Clark wanted to know about the role of Canadians in the joint defense of North American airspace. My, uh, question is to the Prime Minister, and it refers to uh, reports about uh, the Soviet satellite, which uh, has apparently descended in the Great Slave Lake area today. We understand that the Prime Minister was advised of this matter by an early morning phone call from the President of the United States. This seems, Mr. Speaker, to raise a very important question touching Canadian sovereignty. Uh, Canada is supposed to be an equal partner in the NORAD arrangement, which would be surveying this kind of, uh, the, the movement of this kind of vehicle into, uh, uh, into Canadian orbit. What I would like to ask the Prime Minister is, since Canada is an equal partner in NORAD, why was the Prime Minister of Canada not advised by Canadian officials uh, of this, as to this penetration of Canadian territory. Uh, and uh, if he was not advised by Canadian officials, does this indicate that the only way that Canada becomes informed of possible threats to Canada is through phone calls from American officials? Well, Speaker, I regret to inform the leader of the opposition that his facts, as sometimes happens, are completely wrong. Insofar as being informed about this this particular this particular instance of, of an orbit out of control, Mr. Speaker, of course I have been advised several days ago by Canadian officials that the, uh, the there was knowledge that there was a, a, a satellite out of control, that it was tumbling through space, uh, that uh, we were uh, jointly with uh, the Americans at NORAD monitoring its path. As soon as it became apparent that the satellite might land in Canada, Mr. Speaker, the uh, federal government took several preventive measures, including contacting people at the highest level in the provinces concerned with civil defense. But once again, there was not at the outset uh, an identification of the, of the area where the landing might take place. Uh, uh, one hour before the landing, I understand it was still possible that it might have landed in the southern hemisphere rather than in the northern hemisphere. So obviously we did not want to uh, alert every square inch of territory in Canada that something might land. We took whatever preventive actions were necessary in order to permit us to act quickly as soon as the uh, landing site had been precisely defined. When that was established, Mr. Speaker, uh, our officials knew right away, the President of the United States phoned me sometime around 7 o'clock this morning, said that, they're not, that they had it in their radar and that it was about to land and indicated where he thought the landing would be. The real reason, the real reason why the President was phoning me, Mr. Speaker, was to offer to the Canadian forces, should they need it, airborne detecting advices for any possible radioactivity. And that was a, that was a fair offer. I, I undertook to, uh, to uh, see if it would be needed, and I understand that the Minister of National Defence uh, carried on from there, and that uh, our own experts are involved in the detection process. 
the United States immediately offered assistance in the recovery of the satellite, which the government of Canada accepted. And while it may seem that the United States were offering to help their friends to the north, it's more likely they were trying to get their hands on some Soviet space technology. A U-2 plane was dispatched and flew over the Canadian Arctic to detect plumes of U-235. During the day of January 24th, the Department of External Affairs expressed to the Soviet ambassador in Ottawa their surprise that the Canadian government was not given proper notice about a possible re-entry of the satellite over Canada. The Soviet ambassador responded that there was not any sizable hazard and that in places of impact there would be insignificant local pollution. The ambassador also said that it was likely there would be a complete destruction of the satellite in orbit. A group of travelers were in the Northwest Territories, walking in the footsteps of Jack Hornby, a noted Arctic explorer, when they came across a pile of mechanical wreckage. Joking to each other, without knowing what it was, they said it must be a Russian satellite. The military soon arrived in the area, and the group were taken in for radiation testing, and they soon realized that their joke was actually the truth. Creating Operation Morning Light, the Canadian government began combing through an area of 124,000 square kilometers using a Canadian-American team that searched on foot, then in the air, through two phases. The first phase was from January 24, 1978 to April 20, 1978, while Phase 2 began on April 21, 1978 and continued to October 15, 1978. Phase 1 cost $12 million, while Phase 2 cost $1.9 million. Search teams used specially equipped planes and helicopters that could detect the radiation in the Canadian wilderness. If a fragment was detected, a team was sent out on foot to search the area. Unfortunately, due to the difficult terrain and freezing temperatures, it was often hard for teams to get to the remote areas, and sometimes the equipment used to detect the radioactive pieces did not work as planned because of the conditions. The search for Cosmos 954. It began when it was learned that the malfunctioning Soviet spy satellite had fallen from orbit and crashed into the atmosphere over the remote Canadian wilderness near Great Slave Lake. Unlike most falling satellites that completely burn up when they re-enter, Cosmos 954 survived its fiery crashdown and broke into hundreds of fragments that scattered over the frozen land. Highly trained armed forces search teams from Canada and the U.S. then went into action, sweeping over a wide track of the Arctic looking for any traces of the fallen satellite. It was important that any remains of Cosmos 954 be found because the probe was nuclear-powered and the experts were afraid it might be emitting dangerous levels of radiation. Searchers were outfitted in special anti-radiation gear and low-flying sniffer planes were equipped to detect or sniff out any traces of the radioactive remains. After two days of searching, high radiation readings were picked up, but the source of the levels couldn't be pinpointed from the air. While the planes continued their sweeping pattern, ground crews were combing the frozen area in snowmobiles around remote settlements like Baker Lake. Despite their combined efforts, no trace of the radiation could be found again, and some thought the first reading might have been a malfunction. But Cosmos 954 was there, and it was found by a six-man team of explorers who came upon it by chance. The men were on a year-long expedition and hadn't heard anything about the fallen satellite until two of them spotted something on the ice. We were not planning to return to camp for another three or four days. Uh, we turned up a channel of the river and observed off to our right something that we didn't exactly know what it was. It looked like a crater or say um, 
moose or muskox or something like that had been pawing away at the, at the ice. Yeah, that did make sense. And when we got over there, then of course we saw these metal struts kind of sticking up out of the ice. And that didn't make sense either. That's no moose. But it was radioactive debris and the remains of Cosmos 954. It was approximately three meters in diameter with uh, an explosion type splatter program uh, pattern around it in the ice from either other debris coming down and making holes or ice thrown up and uh, melting its way back in around the, around the area of the hole. There was a one big uh, crater and a bunch of little holes around it. That's correct. How many little holes around it? Uh, we didn't, didn't count them, but I'd estimate somewhere between maybe perhaps 50 and 100 of all assorted sizes. The Cosmos 954 search continues. Its fragments are being airlifted out for study and the satellite mystery has ended. For the search teams, the biggest fear was a fuel disk surviving re-entry. A disk could be so radioactive that it could give a lethal dose to anyone within a thousand feet. Thankfully, none were found and all were believed to have been destroyed in the atmosphere. Between January 24th and March 25th, 608 flyovers of the Canadian North were conducted to find traces of the spacecraft and eddy radiation. An estimated 120 American personnel moved into Edmonton, which was the headquarters for the search, with Yellowknife becoming the forward base for handling debris and search flights. An estimated 250 Canadian staff, including flight crews, support and maintenance crews, command staff, and more took part in the search. A total of 13 aircraft were also involved in the search effort at its peak. In all, 4,635 flying hours would be conducted. Interestingly, after several people saw the satellite blow up in the atmosphere and streak across the sky, the news was released by the media that it was actually a malfunctioning Soviet satellite that was carrying enriched uranium. The mayors in Yellowknife and Fort Smith then asked why the government did not make them aware of the situation. The first air detection of radioactivity would occur on January 27th when a fragment was found near the mouth of the Hoarfrost River on Great Slave Lake, 27 kilometers north of Fort Reliance. On January 28th, an object called the Antlers was found near Warden's Grove on the Thillon River by naturalists wintering in the area. This was the largest remnant located and the farthest east a fragment was found. On February 12th, the first report of particles in the vicinity of snowdrift would occur, and on February 20th, the most radioactive fragment was found and would be recovered four days later. Through Operation Morning Light, 12 large pieces of the satellite were recovered, including 10 pieces that were radioactive. One of the first pieces was a large section of the satellite that was found by accident by civilians in the Arctic. The radioactivity of these pieces was high, with one fragment having enough radiation coming off it to kill a person who remained in contact with it for a few hours. It is estimated that less than 1% of the power source of the satellite was recovered. Overall, 4,000 bits of the satellite were recovered throughout 1978. When launched, the satellite weighed about 5 tons, and 65 kilograms of that was recovered. Several particulate of the satellite were also found near Snowdrift Village, home to 400 people. The Thalon Wildlife Sanctuary, created in 1927, received the greatest amount of larger debris from the satellite, found between the end of January and April 1978. From 1930 onwards, the area has banned all mining activities to protect the life in the park from all discarded waste. 
It is believed that the caribou that fed on the fungi of the park and the muskox that fed on the grass may have been contaminated, as well as dozens of fish species. Great Slave Lake, the ninth largest lake in the world, was the second largest ecosystem directly impacted by the satellite debris. According to Leah Jensen, a resident of the area, the search teams often arrived at settlements where the inhabitants had no idea what they were there for. She says, quote, So, out to Baker Lake, the search people went, but many of the old people of this isolated Inuit settlement couldn't understand what all this excitement was about. Then the armed forces reported great amounts of uranium radioactivity reading in various areas. A few days after, they reported that their machinery was malfunctioning and the areas would have to be done again. The few people who could get close to the radioactive debris were tested, but all found to be uncontaminated. She would go on to write about the concerns many had had in the area, saying, quote, The people of the north were asking themselves what the results of all this radioactivity being spread in such a large area would do. It might just be a scare, or it might prove to be very damaging in the near future. We will have to wait and see. One thing is for sure, the North has awakened to a new era. In a poem written by E.D. Cook called Cosmos Caper, he says, quote, So on went the days without a word. Nothing was seen, but a lot was heard. In meeting with inhabitants of the North, the government advised them to report any metallic debris they came across and to stay away from them. The public was also told that there was little danger from the radioactive materials. Naturally, the response across Canada was outrage over the incident. Carl Ribble, writing for the UBC, the University of British Columbia newspaper on February 17, 1978, stated, quote, The Canadian government must now vigorously demand full compensation from the Soviets for any costs which result from searching for and isolating potentially dangerous fragments of the Cosmos 954. As a survivor of the first nuclear satellite accident, Canada inherits the role of a world leader in a movement whose goals will be to ensure that any nuclear payload shot into orbit be governed by stringent safety measures. In a report published in September of 1978, it presents the hypothesis that the reactor core had vaporized and that the fine particles were concentrated at the bottom of Great Slave Lake. In a paper published in the August 1984 issue of Health Physics, it was found that about 7 to 8 kilograms, about one quarter of the reactor, had fallen in the form of fine particles of less than one millimeter in diameter. These particles fell like an invisible fog over the Northwest Territories. The remaining three quarters was a mist that stayed in the atmosphere for years before slowly descending to the planet. By this time, the health risk would have been minimal. Following the recovery, the Canadian government enacted the terms of the 1972 Space Liability Convention, which states that any nation that launches an object into space is liable for the damages caused by that object. The Soviet Union was billed $6 million for the cleanup, or $21 million today. In the end, the Soviet Union only paid half that amount. In arguing against paying, the Soviets stated that since the satellite had broken up by the time it fell to Earth, it was no longer recognized as a satellite. The destruction of the spacecraft would become part of the history and lore of Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories, and Nick McIntosh, a painter in Yellowknife, has created many pieces of art featuring the satellite and well-known local landmarks. In describing the event and his work, he said, quote, It is one of those things that happens every few decades. 
I'm assuming there's not a lot of art out there depicting this event in history. It could very well be I'm the only one who has done anything to commemorate this event. On January 28, 1978, Saturday Night Live featured a running bit about radioactive debris from the crash satellite creating giant, mutated lobsters that were heading to the U.S. East Coast. The show ended with the lobsters invading the studio. With the crash of the satellite, the United States quickly put out a call to prohibit satellites containing radioactive material from orbiting the planet. Similar calls came from Canada and countries in Europe, and in November of 1978, the United Nations authorized its Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space to set up a working group to study nuclear-powered satellites. This event would inspire new law conversations, including the Jessup International Law Competition held at the University of New Brunswick in 1980. Law students were asked to argue the hypothetical case involving outer space law and the liability for such things as radiation contamination. In 2007, former employees of the Fort Reliance Weather Station asked the Canadian government, through their lawyers, about the transit of the Cosmos 954 waste within their workplace, and the risk to anyone who lived there over two years when they were exposed to U-235. The Ministry of Defence responded that, quote, The debris had indeed transited via Fort Reliance, but they had been stored in adequate containers to avoid external contamination. The containers containing the waste would leave Fort Reliance and then be sent, under escort, to Edmonton and then Winnipeg. Health Canada reiterated that from 1980 onwards, no risk could still exist for anyone touching, inhaling, or being near the debris. Nuclear engines are no longer used for satellites, with the Soviet Union launching the last one in 1988. But 30 nuclear-powered satellites still remain, one from the United States and 29 from the Soviet Union. Thankfully, all are above 430 miles and it will take hundreds of thousands of years for them to return to the Earth, except one. The American satellite SNAP-10A was launched in 1965 to 575 miles, but after 43 days it stopped responding. It is currently on a slow trajectory and it will crash into the planet in about 3,000 years. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at Cosmos 954. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you want to reach me, you can. Just go to craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. In addition, you can support the podcast like I said. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Phil Maynard, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawah, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. You can find us on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just search for Bairdo37. Information comes from the Government of Canada, Business Insider, CBC, Radio Canada International, Wikipedia, the University of Calgary Gazette, From Danaview to Standard, Space Law, Up Here, the UBC, RobinDeBoy.org, Flow Journal, Cosmos 954, The Occurrence and Nature of Recovered Debris. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.